Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. We've got another packed show for you today. We'll, of course, be talking about the coronavirus and the economic consequences thereof. But for the first time in weeks, we'll also have another topic as we look (laughs) at the lock that Joe Biden now has on the Democrat nomination in the US. We'll also be looking at questions for the government what do they or do they not bail out Virgin? Is this just the first in a long line of industries and companies lining up for more government bailouts? What should that mean? We'll be unpacking that later in the show. Uh, in our books and culture segment, uh, our panellists, of course, have been looking for relief from all of this. We have a new album from The Strokes, who've been around for a long time. Uh, we have a Japanese-English crime drama. And, well, it had to happen. Yes, we're reviewing Tiger King, the documentary that will long be remembered as one of the sort of the background scenes to the coronavirus epidemic of 2020. Uh, I am joined in the studio by my co-host. I'm not not joined in the studio. I'm not joined in the studio at all, no, because legally speaking, we have to socially distance. So (laughs) that is forced to have it right there. Mind running on rails. You are listening, of course, to the dulcet tones of Chris Berg from RMIT University. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. And coming back for the second week in a row, IPA research fellow, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Great to have you back. And uh, just before we do go to our topics, I would like to just say a quick thank you to you, the listener, or the viewer. Uh, you've been persevering with us as we've uh, adapted to this new uh, online world. Uh, we've solved some technical problems. It gets better every week. And uh, we do have important topics to discuss. So I'd like to thank you for tuning in. Last week was our most successful program we've ever had in terms of downloads. And so we hope that we are providing the information and the commentary that you need to help help us all find our way through this crisis. This is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join or donate and get around some of our research, including the terrific keeping in touch emails uh, that we've been providing to our nearly 6,000 members and also putting online. So do check that out very, very soon. But first up, models, models and more models. Chris Berg, what's what's happening in the world of coronavirus modelling? Well, I mean, it's the only thing that we're focusing on, of course. But I thought today it would be worth talking, at least initially, about just how low our infection numbers have become, why we think they've become that low, and um, what this means for policymakers and and us as citizens to think about what next to do. I don't think it's fully understood in the Australian population how low our numbers are relative to the rest of the world. For a recap, again, we were up around 400 or 300, 400 new infections per day at the end of March. We're now well under 100. The numbers over Easter went down as low as 31. Now, that's probably because of um, uh, slower testing over the public holiday period. But it is still the case that when you think about countries that have responded successfully to this, or just measuring by infection numbers, not measuring by economic performance, of course, then we are one of the best, if not the most successful 
in the world at reducing those infections. So um, let's just briefly have a quick discussion about why uh, we actually, think Chris, that is. I might, I might just jump in. Um, uh, quick, uh, fast fact. Uh, yeah, fast According fact, to an please. IMF analysis of the... Um, the uh, global pandemic uh, released this morning, which is mostly focused on economics, but it claims that the the measures uh, we are the third most successful country in the world, uh, behind some uh, viewers will love this behind China, ah. South, and then South Korea, and then us. So yeah, I think and, that actually and, and that Taiwan actually makes us, or, yeah. That makes us the second most successful country in the world <laughs> with believable numbers. Yes, yes, indeed. So, I mean, well, why don't we throw it first to you, Andrew, um, just on those infection numbers, regardless of whether we think that the trade-offs have been correctly decided or not. Why? Why do you think we are so low? It doesn't. We're not doing things that other countries aren't. Why? Why do you think we've been so successful? Well, I, th I think that um, if you look at it, most of most of the cases in Australia, apart from about a hundred of them, actually trace back to international travel. Um, so there's been very uh, very low rates of community transmission within Australia. So part of that is, I think, um, just living on an island. Um, when we shut down travel, we can really shut it down. Um, I think the government gets some credit for for moving quickly. They didn't. They they did. They staged the um, the travel restrictions. But when they when they realised that how how widely spread the problem had become, um, they shut down the border. Um, so I think that the low rate of, and and then of course we had the we've had so, quite stringent social distancing measures um, now for for three weeks or, or so. Um, and so I think that you'd say that the low rate of community transmission. Um, is probably the is probably the reason. So the, that it basically everything in Australia traces back to international travel. So the key move was closing the border. Yeah, look, I I think that's absolutely right. And they they're sort of quote closing the border and closing the border. And so the United States has talked a lot about the fact that it quote closed the border with China, but it did nothing really of the sort compared to what Australia did simultaneously. And we actually did it a day or so earlier than they did. It's also the fact that we've got mandatory 14-day quarantine for anyone, anyone coming in from overseas. It doesn't matter whether you're an Australian citizen or resident, um, uh, just you are locked down. Now we've gone even further than that um, and required people not to quarantine at home, but to quarantine in hotel rooms, which again starts moving us towards these mandatory quarantines that um, have been um, uh, successful elsewhere. I I did hear another um, interesting argument, and I'm not sure how much I um, uh, believe this argument, but it's a very interesting one. Um, so thinking about the difference between um, so so the international travel is obviously a key thing, but why is community transmission? so low amongst affected groups. And one argument that I've heard is that Australia's elderly population, the people who are most likely to be um, uh, harmed by this, most likely to show up in hospitals, most likely to be tested because it's more harmful for, for elderly and immunocompromised people, um, are also, unlike in some other more affected countries like Italy, they're, they're also more lonely. They're actually less deeply socially connected to the rest of the community. So um, elderly people in Italy will tend to have much closer um, family relationships. They'll be living in the same home as, um, as, as you know, their grandchildren and so forth. In Australia, that's less the case. Now, in most 
context, that's horrible. There's social isolation for elderly people. But in this sad case, it actually has worked in our favor for restricting the spread of the virus. Now, I don't. I, I think that's a really interesting one because that tells us that there are actually cultural differences that make the spread of transmission quite different. In yeah, different I, I think th- I think that's right. I mean, I've I've, I've seen that reported that um, in Italy, um, and it's, it's well known about about Italy and about Mediterranean cultures generally that um, there's more um, multi generation households. Um, the, the the downside of that, of course, apart from the in normal circumstances, um, the downside of not having that, I should say, um, is as you say the isolation, but also that our uh, we've you know we shouldn't minimise uh, what what this really means here in Australia is that if old people are living in retirement villages and retirement communities, they are actually um, quite vulnerable to the spread of the disease. Yeah. Um, so we've done well. To keep them, because it, then it becomes a point of um, you know keeping the disease out of those communities altogether. So we've still you know even on that score, you'd have to say it's quite an achievement that we haven't had like they have had in the United States. Um, the disease enter retirement homes and really um, affect the population there quite badly. Yeah, there has been one or two instances, but um, uh, overall not so much. And and before we go on and, and tease out. The implications of this, you know, remarkably low infection rate uh, and mortality rate. It's, I think it's also worth observing what you said at the start, Chris, which is this is not generally understood, and this is a classic example of media amplification. We're perhaps coming out of the phase, but uh, there's nothing media organisations do so well as you know amplify whatever's happening in a in a crisis situation, and they and they're there to tell human stories, and and in, in a sense they've done a remarkably good job of doing this. There is there is no doubt that uh, while we can discuss the um, uh, the you know the degree. Uh, that you know the percentage of people who become quite ill uh, and for whom the disease is fatal, but the media certainly does a very good job of, of uncovering their stories, and and it's not pretty at all. It's, these are of course tragic human stories, and uh, and that has dominated the news cycle um, probably right up until about a week ago, uh, particularly uh, passengers coming off the Ruby Princess and so on, and and it does actually have to stop for a moment my daughter asked me this morning you know how many people have actually died and i said oh well i think it's less than 100 and i looked it up and it was 64 and that's you know 64 human tragedies um but uh as you know of course there's lots of causes of death and lots of other things so so as you say chris it is worth pausing and just resetting and understanding what a remarkably low set of numbers this is yeah, yeah, no, that's right. So, um, what should we do about this? So, so now that we have this remarkably low set of numbers, um, how should we respond? How should that change our calculation? And I'll preface this by saying that I think the debate that's been happening online or in some of the um, pages of our newspapers has been um, remarkably misleading in a lot of ways and it's come up with this binary you either let it rip shut everything shut all the restrictions down and let everybody go about their daily business as if the restaurants are going to open tomorrow 
or you have to maintain maximum social distancing, stage three or stage four or stage five restrictions in perpetuity until, well, I don't know, until it's either zero or zero for nine weeks or or, or, or what have you, or until there's a vaccine. But uh, Andrew, how do you sort of think through the choice that we have to make now in in mid April, I think the first thing to start, you know, to start with, I think there's been a little bit of goalpost shifting here when we talk about. So it's clear that at a certain point um, we have to start transitioning back to to something akin to normal life. It might take a long time to to state to do the different stages to get everything up and running again. But the goalpost shifting has been that, if you recall, flattening the curve was about making sure that the hospitals were not overrun with cases. That suggests that once we're at a certain point um, uh, where the, the transmission, the trans, it's not just, sorry, I should say, it's not just the transmission rate. It's actually the number of people who need uh, ICU beds. Um, so it's about the severity, what we, what we learn about the severity over the course of the crisis. And in that sense, the transmission rate is less important. So, when, so one of the key the key measure should be if we're being consistent with the flattening the curve goal that we set ourselves, is how likely we think it will be when we start relaxing these measures that the that the hospital system will be overrun. And that doesn't have um, a uh, a clear linear relationship with the transmission rate as such. So now they're talking about. Well, you can only open up the economy once the transition rate is um, at zero or somewhere below, well below one. But we don't, we um, don't, we don't have to be consistent with. I mean, so it was a sh- the, the flattening the curve model. Not just it, it's a model for um, massive investment in in medical services, but it's also an an assumption that you can't defeat it. So, I mean, we saw the flattening the curve model first in February. And under the assumption that there's no way that you can ever present prevent the spread of this virus, it is going to spread to everyone or 40 or 70% of everyone. You just got to manage that spread. Now, it turns out in a country like Australia, which, as you say, is an island and you can prevent new people from coming in, um, you, we can get rid of it or, or we can get very close. Yeah. Getting but rid of the, it. The, the, that yeah, gives us goal- new choices. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, the goal the goal could well be for Australia to eliminate it here domestically, um, and then um, simply make it uh, part of our quarantine process going forward. Um, and I'm not I'm not opposed to that. Uh, I'm, all I'm saying is that um, supposedly the key measure that the 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 disaster that we have been hedging against the entire time is the get it, having the pandemic run away from us. It overruns. The, the the hospital system and that that creates more and more deaths because the the system becomes unable to treat people who get infected but at no point in Australia and at no point in almost all countries have we seen the intensive care ca- capability of the country get close to being overrun it's not, not, not it's not yeah. even close no that's true um, not, not, not as a country you might you might see it in say New York City in a in a yeah. particular Italy, location. Or, yeah. Um, and I think or, all I'm or, saying or really Italy. all I'm saying is that that is that is that remains a relevant consideration. We were right 
we were right to worry that that's what would happen. We didn't want people getting infect, infected and being turned away from hospitals, being unable to be treated. We were right to worry about that. But we're still right to worry about it now that it looks like, um, in fact, a number of people will be infected and not need intensive care and not need hospitalisation. Scott, you had a great piece. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to allow you to introduce your own piece. But Scott, you had a great piece in LinkedIn. Um, uh, was it yesterday or the day before? Um, uh, talking about some of these considerations. Yes. Um, so, see, I set and, it up, and, there you, and then you knock it down. That's how this works. I, I'm going to because I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm going to further set it up uh, with with uh, an alternative because there, there is now two ways to responding of, to this new factoid. As as Andrew said, the original intention was merely to to flatten the curve. Now, w- one option which you know the Grattan Institute has now embraced. Is, a, is to say, oh, my God, we could actually eradicate this completely. Um, and their strategy I would characterise as being essentially to create the world's biggest quarantine station. Um, I mean, they don't, you know, they don't care about football, but it's almost like in their scenario. We are now Ellis Island, the whole. The yeah, whole yeah, yeah. It's, one, it's uh, 25 million people trapped alive in the Southern Ocean <laughs> and... Uh, we could we could have a hundred thousand people at the grand final, and it doesn't matter because there is literally no disease in Australia. This this is the strategy that they they now believe that we could um, embark upon um, uh, if you know after say two more months of complete lockdown because it's a complete eradication strategy. Uh, as as anyone who's read my LinkedIn article, I I I, I do not subscribe to that theory. I it, it is about a staged and careful reopening. And and the point I was mainly trying to make, as you say, it's not about let it rip. The opposite end of this spectrum is not let it rip. No one's talking about let it rip. Um, certainly not the IPA. It is a staged and careful reduction. But uh, my example was the AFL and the NRL. Um, two large, powerful organisations with cash resources, close to governments, um, in the AFL's case, uh, highly competently well-managed organisation, in the NRL's case, you know, moderately competent, well-run <laughs> organisation. Um, and both of them have been making plans to, for a staged, careful return to business, you know, originally without crowds and then so on and so forth. And in the course of the last week, they're, they're, whatever they floated as ideas were slapped down by the various chief medical officers, uh, by Brad Hazard in New South Wales, saying, ain't going to happen, we're in lockdown, forget about it, you, you know, you're not, you're not going anywhere, son, until you talk to us. Uh, the NRL's been pushing back, and the AFL's, you know, more softly, softly, catchy the monkey. But the point is, if organisations of that power and scope uh, and degree of sort of public support can't fight their way through this thicket, uh, which is the lockdown, um, then what hope do other industries have? And I, I think these these will be fights. Every industry will have to fight, but it does it through applied risk management. It's not arguing for let it rip. It's like, here's how we are going to manage these risks. Uh, here's how a restaurant could open, you know, as in some European countries, only with table seating, um, with might be temperature checks, there might be refusal of service to anyone who looks unwell, what it, whatever it is. There's careful rules on sort of uh, safety medical advice that you can develop and which should be allowed. So it's not the letter rip strategy. It's, it's, it's a careful stage reintroduction of 
normal life. And I think it's a much more likely scenario than this utopian idea that we can just eliminate the virus and then just you know live happily ever after in, in our little island. I'm not opposed to living happily ever after on our island, our big <laughs> island. Um, and, and for that, like, but I, I do wonder how, as you say, you would mitigate the risk of um, someone getting through the quarantine control. Um, so if we got to a point where we had eliminated the disease in Australia, um, you would you might still in the future want people to come into the country, um, you know, uh, and international and, students say, well, you know, you know, it's, it's, well, it's this could be a good this could be a good opportunity for our universities to reconsider their business model. Um, but uh, you might want people to come in. In any in any event, if you miss one, um, and it turns out to be a super spreader, we could be doing this all over again. Um, and so you won't have uh, mitigated the biggest risk, which is another epidemic in Australia. Um, and so I'd be interested to know um, how it is that you could. Um, how it is that when you when you take into account that risk of a repeat epidemic, um, you know, noting the absence that we will have of of, of herd immunity, having not um, all confe- uh, inf- been infected, um, once you include that in the calculation, how is that less risky um, than the staged? Well, exactly, um, and 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 all that you're talking about. And one one final thing. So I I am. Uh in, in, in my writings, um, trying to make a distinction between the macro and the micro. I'm sick of these macro models which talk about, say, an idea that, you know, as a nation we will do, you know, X strategy, in this case total eradication, and then as a nation we can then flip to a certain mode of operating, which is, you know, release social controls. And uh, I think what's, that's just so unreal realistic for the for the reasons that you outlined amongst others and it's it's got to be micro it's it's time to actually get the focus onto individual industries how can we reopen the factories how can we keep the mines running um how how can we allow uh domestic tourism uh domestic hospitality industries to resume um and uh even yeah god forbid andrew the uh the international student market which um uh was wild wildly um uh, exploding beyond control, but is still a good earner for Australia, and actually something Australia does for the world as well. So let's let's move on and talk about um, some of the policy choices, though those micro policy choices, perhaps um, that we need to start making, or or governments, I should say, are starting to be presented with. Um, and of course, I'm talking about um, right now the question about the bailout for Virgin. Australia Airlines. Um, uh, at the moment, it looks like Qantas is going to be okay, or at least it looks like it's going to be okay as of early this week. That may well change, but Virgin is in a great deal of trouble and is approaching the government or preparing to approach the government to ask for some sort of bailout or guarantee. The um, opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, is very passionate and believes that any bailout should come with government equity stakes. So that is, it should come with government ownership. Scott, how do you, what, what, what's your view on this? And I'll share my view in a moment. What, what's your view on the um, idea of, A, should we bail out these companies? And, and B, if we're going to bail them out, 
should we take a little slice as well or should uh, or, or should we be thinking more of it just as a corporate welfare type situation yes chris what's happening with virgin uh, is going to happen with a lot of companies and industries and it does act, but it does also provide a unique set of problems i'm old enough to remember when uh, when adset collapsed uh, we had a the only thing worse than a duopoly in the australian domestic aviation market is a monopoly, which is uh, what we virtually had there when uh, ANSET collapsed and left the field to Qantas. Um, what seems to be on the table at the moment is uh, something called a convertible note issue, which I don't fully understand or pretend to, <laughs> uh, but it's uh, the players, uh, the federal government, which at the moment is saying we're not interested, it's actually playing pretty hardball, which, which might give some comfort to those who are saying don't get involved, don't bail out industries. Uh, I, for me, you did ask what I think. I'm, I'm a little bit more inclined to actually save the airline. I have no interest in saving the shareholders. Uh, apparently, the shares imply an equity value of about $600 million. That, to me, feels like a bet uh, that the government's going to bail it out because an airline that's not flying is not generally a profitable sort of business model. No, it has actually no value whatsoever. It has actually no value. And the sooner the equity holders, uh, which is mainly uh, foreign airlines like uh, Singapore and Nanshan, uh, acknowledge that the sooner we can all get on with our lives. The issues are then about uh, bondholders. There's uh, face value of $2 billion worth of debt sitting there. Apparently that's trading somewhat less than half uh, that face value in, in secondary markets. So most people have already priced in some kind of collapse. I just want to see the shell rescued um, by the government. Uh, I have, uh, even though I'm laissez-faire, I have no qualms about that because it's it's not the virus that, that caused the airline to collapse, it's the lockdown. Uh, these are government measures that have caused this, but I think the lesson we learned from the GFC is... Um, uh, you know, don't, don't reward equity holders. That's where the moral hazard is. So yes to a government rescue, but no to bailing out the current equity holders. Yeah, look, I, I was always, I was extremely and still am very opposed to bailouts during the global financial crisis, which um, the, a lot of banks made bad decisions. A lot of finance companies, um, uh, car loan firms made some really bad financial decisions that they could have made better ones and people did make better ones. Uh, th the case against bailouts just isn't anywhere near as strong in this circumstance, because the government shut down the economy and it is the government that has decided um, to enforce the Australia Island, the, the mass quarantine. It's the government that has decided to make these policy decisions that um, crashes these private companies. Now, is it the we, there, there, there are better and worse. Sorry, go on, Andrew. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, in, in one sense, that's obviously true that the government made the decision. Um but on the other hand, um, they were responding to a pandemic, um, which is a force majeure. And, you know, you would think that if you were particularly like an airline, and, I, and, and this isn't necessarily my view, but just to put the other view, um, you would think that if your business model was entirely dependent on moving people and cargo between countries, you might have um, insured yourself against the possibility that the borders might be shut um, it's not like no one ever speculated that a pandemic might occur again. No, that's that's right. But what I'm uh, and and I think you can answer that 
um, on uh, by, by thinking about the way that the bailout or the way that any guarantee or what have you actually functions. But I just cannot get away from the fact that the government has chosen, probably rightly, to fight this public health pandemic. And, you know, so l- let me put all my cards on the table. My libertarianness is not a libertarianness, uh, is not a libertarian philosophy that says there's no role for government. There is a role for government in things like national defense. And, um, uh, and it was always admitted, although not well discussed because it didn't seem like a live possibility, pandemic management, traditional public health management. And in that context, if you think about the what is the cost of protecting firms from falling apart when you have imposed policies that require them to stop functioning, well, that's the cost of public health. And so when we come to account for the costs of fighting the COVID-19 pandemic, it will be things like this that have to be accounted as part of it. Now, I don't, I, I'm deeply uncomfortable with this line of argument. Um, and the idea of bailing out private shareholders that you're right, you can imagine a world in which they insured against massive geopolitical risk or pandemic risk or border risk. You can imagine a world in which they insured against that. But I just cannot get away from the immediate first thing, which is that the government has shut them down. And the idea that we would just accept the government shutting down a private firm with no protection for that private firm and no protection for their staff and their employees, I, I, I just don't buy. Well, the, the, the other thing, uh, to fully ventilate an alternative that, um, and this is a live discussion, there, uh, even within the IPA, uh, there, there are um, those who believe uh, would rather support an alternative option, which is to maintain some competition in a, in a post-virgin world by ending cabotage restrictions. Now, here's, here's where the, you know, the dead hand of government comes in as well. This, this is why a, um, a plane that, say, um, Singapore Airlines flies into Sydney, disembarks passengers and then needs to fly on to Melbourne, uh, can't actually take passengers on. This is prohibited by law. Um, because of essentially protectionism, that um, cabotage in the, as it's called in that market and also in shipping. Um, and uh, if we release those restrictions, uh, then voila, there's, there's your competition for Qantas. Um, just so I should ventilate that, it's a reasonable proposition. It happened a little bit uh, after the ANSET collapse. Um, but the political economy of, of cabotage is so damn strong. I mean, this would be something that the IPA should, you know, would, would say, get rid of it anyway. But it's like, if we haven't already done it, um, then I think it's highly, highly unlikely that it's going to happen in this context. I mean, the first time, uh, you know, China Air applies to bring its flight from Wuhan uh, to Melbourne via Brisbane and to embark passengers in Brisbane. Imagine, imagine the fun that Qantas spin doctors would have with that. I just don't. That's why I just I see it as a, a neat, elegant economic solution, but one that is totally unrealistic politically. I, I, I think you're a bit negative. Um, uh, yeah, I have been accused of that in the past. You, you Chris. have been accused of that. science. What we have seen in the last like four weeks is probably one of the most significant deregulatory periods in the last century. 
as um, governments have realized that the restrictions that they place on private businesses are preventing them from responding effectively to the pandemics. And it's not just about medical devices or hand sanitizer approval processes. It's about um, all the tiny little taxes and charges that we put on agriculture companies that we put on manufacturers. It's about the things that we impose on banks and finance firms. All this sort of stuff has been stood down. Now, a lot of that might be temporary, but a lot of it will be permanent. We are making decisions that are likely to be permanent. We've spoken about the welfare policies that are being introduced now that, again, I I suspect will be permanent or or at least very long-term, like free childcare and so forth. But many of these regulatory changes will be permanent. And if we are in a position to withdraw the state from some of those ridiculous claims, I mean, the the argument for cabotage does not exist. It is, as as you point out, purely to protect Qantas's incredibly profitable Melbourne Sydney route. Um, if we had the sort of far-sighted government that was thinking not about how can we get through tomorrow, but how can we make Australia better off after this crisis is over, then it would be thinking about those sorts of restrictions. Because regardless of how we deal with this crisis, we always have to have front in mind that what will the Australian economy look like after it's over? And it cannot look like a 1970s-style heavy nationalisation, the sort of stuff that Anthony Albanese appears to be proposing. It has to look like a vibrant, low-regulation, free-market economy. And we have the chance, we have the chance right now to um, help facilitate that. I think, isn't there a quarantine problem with this, with um, getting rid of cabotage restrictions? I mean... Just thinking it through, I mean, a plane comes in from overseas, it has international people on it that would have to go through quarantine. You then add domestic passengers to that mix. Those domestic passengers then have to go through quarantine on the other end. So you could fly, you get on this theoretical flight from Air China or whatever in Sydney, you get off in Melbourne at the international terminal yeah, and you, can't and you have to go through yeah. customs. Like there's a reason, it's not just, I mean, I'm sure that there is a definitely a protectionist reason for this, but I don't think it's just that. And Australia's quarantine rules have, have been criticised a lot by a lot of people for a long time um, to the point where, you know, they had just to... Ask, um, just ask Johnny Depp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, to, even going back to like the, the, the Olympics in Melbourne in 1956, the equestrian events were held in Stockholm. Um, because Australia said you can't just bring any old horse into Australia. Um, and they were like, these are some of the best horses in the world, and we were like, we don't care. Um, and, this is, and, and this is the point, is Australia's quarantine laws are really strict, and they're really strict for a reason, and we're seeing it now. Um, we're seeing why it's really good to have strict quarantine to be an island. So I would put that out there um, just as as a non-protectionist reason for why you might care about um, having your own domestic routes governed in a different way. I just want to thank Andrew for, for saving my argument for, for actually the government intervening to keep Qantas, uh, to keep uh, Virgin in the skies. <laughs> Cause, cause no, the, I, alternative, the alternative uh, has its own issues. 
I mean, the only point I'll make is that we any decisions we're making now are um, uh, during the crisis and after the crisis. And there is no possible world in which we remain quarantine island, separate from the global economy, by ourselves, quietly making our own stuff and not accepting tourism, not sending out tourists. That's that's just not a world that's going to happen. Maybe it won't. Maybe maybe it'll take a couple of years to get there. God, I hope not. But maybe it'll take a couple of years before we can reintegrate to the global economy. But no, there is well, no the- possible world in which we are not eventually reintegrated. I think the great the great lie in this debate is that one side is focused only on keeping jobs. Uh, one side is only focused on saving lives, and the other side has this utilitarian calculation about the economic state of the country in the future. Whereas, of course, everyone is making that a similar calculation about the future, thinking about the kind of country that we want to have and the kind of country we're going to need to have to, to bounce back from this as quickly as possible. Uh, and I think your point really gets to that is, is that w- whichever side you are on about how strict the shutdown needs to be and for how long that period needs to be, um, and I think as we've talked about, there are real shades of grey there. Um, it's not either or, it's not one or the other. It's, um, but wherever you stand on that spectrum, um, everyone is making this calculation with a view to the future. It's not that there's some cynical, nasty cabal of economists who care about this and, and everyone else is just focused on um, on the lives that are in danger right now. I mean, everyone is thinking about the future because, of course, people's lives, people who are alive now, the people we're focusing on, on protecting, their lives extend into the future um, and they have children whose lives will be lived in the future. So it would be extraordinary. It would be extraordinary if our focus really were only on the present moment. Um, and so I think I think you're right uh, at a at a in a very in a macro or abstract in an abstract sense that this is exactly what we need to be thinking about. Every action we take now, it's not enough just to say it's necessary to save lives. Now we need to build into the calculation what this means for the country going forward and the lives that will be lived here in that time. But I can also say, just to add slightly to that, sorry, to to add slightly to that, it's also um, the case that it's not just about the jobs that we might save now, it's about under the circumstances that we might save those jobs as well. So um, uh, are we, by making certain decisions, setting the economy up on a path of, um, less prosperity well, than we would be otherwise. Chris, this is what I, this is exactly what I was going to throw to you. And I, you know, we skipped over the Anthony Albanese response, but I think it's it's pretty important because we've been talking about options. I mean, the one that's on the table from the alternative government, the you know the, those who might have been in power if it wasn't for um, Bob Brown's extremely helpful uh, tour of Central Queensland <laughs> during the last federal election. Uh, they have they have no qualms at all uh, about equity injections. Um, uh, circumstances which uh, we've seen in historical times are usually a one way track to to government ownership. I mean, this is how the British car industry finished up nationalised. You have a you know a, a little or, or various Australian industries were nationalised. How um, where um, so Albanese's basically said that the solution for Virgin is is an equity injection by yeah. government. 
and, 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 I and hope, that was I, that was your point. I, I hope that he hasn't thought that well through because um, if you use that as the model for bailouts during this crisis, we will end up with an economy that we have spent decades trying to roll back. So um, we had that economy. We had that economy in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s, and it dropped us into um, stagflation. It dropped us um, well down the global rankings of prosperity and living standards. It was actively harmful. And if we made those decisions now, if we decided, okay, well, Virgin is now Virgin um, owned partially by the Australian government, then we are going to have to spend decades trying to roll back the um uh, though we're going to have to spend decades trying to privatize it we're going to have to spend decades we're already going to spend decades paying for the choices we make in this crisis mm. why should we also set ourselves up for a poorer economic system this is the sort of stuff that i'm working at with my colleagues at RMIT how can we jump to a high growth economy that will be able to pay back all the debt and consequences of this crisis response. Yeah, That's no, what we should sure be thinking about I'm, during the I'm, crisis. I'm not sure that Albanese is talking about owning a part of Virgin for decades. Um, I think the, I think the I mean, idea it, it, that they have... They, they said the no, same thing no, about I, the NBN as well. I mean, I don't know. We'll, we'll definitely yeah. sell it. <laughs> no, no, no. I take, I take, I take your point, and, but I, I don't think it would be that hard for a future government to sell it um, at a loss. I'll get to that. But I think... Um, Albanese has in mind the what um, the Obama administration did with um, General Motors, mm. um, where where basically the government took took ownership and then sold it at a profit. Um, and so the idea, like what Albanese is talking about, is is only owning it for a short period of time with a view to making money. Now, I would say um, the significant difference here is that I do not think. Um, I do not think that owning an airline is a growth industry at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I think it's uh, unlikely to turn a profit for the government. Um, if you're an entrepreneur, it would not be your bet. Yeah, um, and indeed, you you know that that's kind of true because you don't see too many billionaires looking to buy Virgin Australia. Um, so I think... You know, to be fair to Albanese, I'm not sure that he's talking about going back to, um, a sh you know, wide-ranging yeah. national ownership. And I'm, I certainly don't think he's talking about, like, what we had, you know, what the British had where, you know, the government owned biscuit factories and things as late as the 1990s. I don't think that yeah. that's really what he's talking but, about. But, but the political economy of it, the political about. economy of it, it doesn't matter what he intends. It doesn't matter whether he thinks, oh, we'll only own it for a couple of days and then we'll sell it off um, or a couple of years and then we'll sell it off. Because once you own these things, the um, all the political incentives, all the incentives of the bureaucrats who administer them, all the incentives of the unions that will work in them, all the incentives of the um, uh, companies that um, uh, uh, base their relationships on the new new nationalised firm in, on politics rather than market yeah. economics yeah the bond the bondholders they want the government guarantee of course yeah that's another set of stakeholders yeah so so andrew i think that was scrupulously fair and 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 let's give <laughs> albanese the benefit Arguably of the doubt but you know like if 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 lee he sent uh lou uh from uh singapore i think i just butchered the the prime minister's name if he said we're going to take over ownership and then refloat it and and get it back into the private sector i'd believe him 
because um, they could actually be agile enough to do it. I, I the, the only reason we're able to under, under, um, unwind it in Australia is, you know, Paul Keating and Bob Hawke came along. And there's, there's none of those guys around. There's certainly none of them around in the, in the social democratic parties. No, this would, this would be a one-way street. The so speaking of segways, does of course own a whole lot of whole lot of things like uh, real estate. Yeah, and and they can actually do it because <laughs> so, they're not accountable to anyone, so they, they they don't suffer the political economy traps that uh, that we do in Australia. So speaking of segways, Scott. <laughs> speaking of people who want to own massive amounts of stuff for the government. Speaking of people who want to socialise the economy, uh, Bernie Sanders um, is very unlikely. <laughs> to be the next president of the United States, given that he has endorsed his primary rival in the US presidential Democratic primaries, uh, Joe Biden. This is a um, uh, this is on the face of it, a collapse of the political success of the um, Democratic Socialists within the Democratic Party, um, of the Bernie bros, of a uh, very influential, at least on the internet and in some of the mainstream press, subculture of the um, Democratic party um andrew uh how do you think let's talk about bernie for a moment and just give some reflections how do, how do you think this reflects on either bernie or, or or his movement that so vociferously supports him the bernie rolling over um so quickly um and now endorsing biden um and 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 saying that um you know it's all about beating trump i mean it really it really says something, I think, about Bernie, which is that he is the worst kind of controlled opposition. Um, <laughs> that he is not a real revolutionary. What kind of pathetic revolutionary would roll over like this? Um, and it makes you wonder whether the entire Bernie Sanders phenomenon is largely fake. Um, and certainly from the top down um it's something of a it's something of a media creation and 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 it must be right because here you have this 70 or 8 78 year old incredibly uncharismatic incredibly unaccomplished person um who is somehow the leader of um of a, a supposedly mass movement um and then when push comes to shove and this has happened twice now um when it's really come down to it and he's got to the last two he's been incredibly supine he let hillary clinton and her acolytes steal the nomination from him last time um, we know this because we know that for example um in the last in the, the last go around um hillary was getting the debate questions ahead of time um and he doesn't care um he's got three houses so here he is this time looks like he's got a chance um of being um the nominee and and what happens everyone starts dropping out in a what seemed to be a very controlled sequence um to maximize biden um who had a when everyone else was in the race when everyone was when the race was still live biden did very badly but then people started dropping out and biden's performance improved they decided that they had to go all in on biden and bernie has played the team game um what a what a what a extraordinary standard you are holding him up to, and I I have no, um, uh, I'm not carrying any water for Bernie whatsoever because I I agree with basically zero of his views. But um, I so as I understand, Bernie has always said 
Um, I will support the Democratic nominee. There was no chance um, in the last couple of weeks that he was going to successfully be the Democratic nominee. Um, he's always said that his view was it's more important to get a Democrat elected um, over Donald Trump than, um, uh, than you know, the, that's the most important thing here. Um, now, I in any democratic political system, in any party political system, you have a choice to make. You can either back your party when push comes to shove, or you can decide to run third party or, or decline to vote or whatever it is. And it seems like many of the Bernie bros and many of his movement are very angry with him for supporting the Democrat nominee. But to my mind, that just says, well, you know, it's politics. He's a party. Ultimately, fundamentally, he's a no, party guy. But, but he never he never used the full leverage of his position. He's not even a member of the Democratic Party. Um so he's even more of an independent in some sort of sense than um, than Trump was. But Trump was always prepared to use the full leverage. If he thought that he wasn't getting a fair crack from the Republican establishment, you remember there was a debate that Trump didn't show up to. And mm. when, he was, when he was on the stage and they said, they asked all of the Republican candidates, will you support the Republican nominee no matter what? Trump was the only one who said, well, maybe not. Um, now, he probably would have, but it doesn't matter. The point was that Trump was prepared to use the full weight of his leverage to get what he wanted within the Republican Party. And you can't say the same about Bernie. Now, he might think he's playing quite a clever game because the debate or the what's actually going on in the Democratic Party is jostling among factions for who will get to pull the strings on the cadaver of Joe Biden should he be president. <laughs> Um, Joe Biden is at this point not really a functioning human being. Um, he is um, basically a reanimated corpse. I'm not sure. I imagine it's, it's he, weekend at Bernie's. You know, yeah, just wheeling, wheeling him out. Well, like, I imagine it's Leonard yeah, Brezhnev. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that when he wakes up in the morning, they shoot him full of adrenaline or or shock him with electricity or something to get him twitching. Um, and so, <laughs> and so I think um, the, what's actually going on in the Democrat Party is that they're sort of jostling for um, who will shape his agenda behind the scenes. And Bernie might think that having dragged his party to the left, and I'd say if you were going to point to any success he's had, it would be that you have otherwise um, mainstream Democrats like Joe Biden mimicking a lot of his language so you could say he's dragged the party to the left. Do, do, do you know somewhat. what this is, Andrew? Like, I, I, you know, I, it, it's it's a really interesting angle, and um, which I'm warming to, I must say. Um, in a, in a way, it's it's almost a, a Marxist sort of view of bourgeois politics. I mean, this this is the way. This is how a Marxist views democracy. That. Um, Essentially, the, the oppositional movements that come along in the political process, and we could probably go right back to the, the brothers Gracchi in, in, you know, Republican Rome, who were the, you know, uh, the representatives of the, of the people and, and um, uh, the masses. But, you know, they were from a noble family and uh, they were sitting in the Senate. So everything's a little <laughs> bit relative. Um, and they were knocked off for their troubles because they just went a little bit too far. Uh, and the patricians took care of it, but yes, the the certainly politicians come along who 
uh, make great promises on behalf of the people. Um, and But somehow they're accommodated within the system. And the, and whatever, you know, it's not all about Bernie. There's sort of a almost a, uh, an archetype here, a, a recapitulation of something that we've, we've seen time and time again. Uh, and those who refuse to accommodate, like, say, Whitlam, you know, one way or another, they, they, they fall over or the CIA takes care of them or whatever. But, um, yeah, this, this, this is what, no doubt, the democratic socialists but are the, saying. It's like, God damn it, to think that for is, once we forgot and we actually backed someone in an electoral process. Now, now what will they go back? But, but is, you're not, you're not voting about for Bernie. It. This is the thing about Bernie, and this, is, this, will be, this might shock people, but Bernie's problem was that he was insufficiently Marxist. In the end, yeah, that in, shocks me. In the end, he bought into the um, postmodern uh, identity politics liberal strain of the Democrat Party, and he went away from talking about classical Marxist issues. Um, if he'd run um, more on a kind of a uh, you know nationalize everything. Boost the, boost, boost more Corbyn. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the point was the point. The point I'm, I'm endeavouring to make is that um, there's been a kind of terminological confusion um, to the, uh, and in my own humble way, perhaps I've contributed to it. But the post this postmodern leftism that the um, that the Democrat Party in the United States is perhaps the the leading um, promoter of is not really Marxist. If you take out um, historical materialism, if you take out um, man as worker and these fundamental Marxist concepts, you're not left with very much. Um, and in fact, what they, what they really believe in is this kind of um, politics of recognition. And you can see, you can see this um, because when it came down to it, the Democrat Party had a choice. It could be the party that wanted to boost the material well-being of the working class, or it could be the party that delivered open borders for Wall Street, and it chose the latter, and that's very important, and that's and that is what ultimately marks the failure of Bernie Sanders, and his campaign launch this time around focused entirely, almost entirely, on identity issues, and in hindsight, it's easy to see that he was stuffed right from the first moment. So what what does this mean for November? Um, so we have, as you put it, a reanimated corpse or a barely animated corpse um, uh, against Donald Trump. We have a – it's very, uh, very unclear what a Joe Biden presidency stands for outside um, he's not Donald Trump and he's not Bernie Sanders. Um, so – uh, he, he's he's not for nationalising everything, but he's for nationalising some things. Um, uh, it's not clear what, but um, uh, obviously the intellectual movement within the Democrat Party is um, uh, leaning in that direction and may well lean further as a result of the um, uh, COVID-19 crisis. Um, how do you think that a Joe Biden, um, and maybe Scott, you should, you should take this one first. How do you think a Joe Biden-Donald Trump um, uh, contest looks like, given the massive ructions that we've just seen in the last two months? Um, well, I think one of the things that Biden has going for him is, you know, the, um, American politics is machine politics. And uh, to be fair to Biden's people, 
what happened in the primary process, my reading as people were dropping out, it was more about just rebuilding that Obama coalition. And, you know, this idea that Biden polls better amongst um, uh, work, working class Americans, uh, amongst deplorables in the Midwest, that he polls better amongst African Americans. I think that's actually uh, probably true. Um, uh, he's been around for long enough. I mean, name recognition, just like Trump. I mean, you know, there's a reasonable school of thought that the thing that got Trump over the line is just name recognition from being around for 40 years, 50 years. You, you, you do get that. Um, you know, Trump got it through uh, television and his property dealings, and Biden's just been around forever. Um, and, and people remember a time, you know, when he could actually finish a sentence as well as start one, and they, they probably <laughs> trade on that a little bit. And uh, Obama's now come out. And remember, Obama is a phenomenal fundraising machine as well. Um, so, and Obama can't, was, can't hold any fundraisers right now, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was all online. Remember that you know he, online, he yeah. pioneered the small donations uh, strategy, which uh, raised uh, a hell of a lot of money, and then he still locked in Hollywood. Now they won't have Harvey Weinstein to raise money for them this time around, but um, I'm sure they'll still get a lot of a lot of money out of out of the great and the good, as well as a as a mass base. So. Um, apart from the fact that he can't remember his own name, Biden actually has a lot going for him. Um, uh, so we, we shall see. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't underestimate the ability of the Democrat machine to now mobilise and produce something pretty impressive. And just being not Trump uh, is not the dumbest political slogan I've ever heard. <laughs> Andrew. Yeah, I think, well, Biden, it's certainly true that Biden's support among African-Americans was decisive in the primary. Um, whether that has the same impact against Trump remains to be seen because the Dem the Democrat vote in the inter-party contest, sorry, um, between Democrats and Republicans is already saturated. It comes down to, to turnout, um, whether people will be enthusiastic to, to turn out um, you know, people of, of all racial backgrounds will be enthusiastic to turn out for Joe Biden remains to be seen. Um, and obviously a lot will have to do with how the pandemic plays out because Trump, um, and in recent days, Trump has, has indicated that he understands this. Trump will be marked now on, on what happens uh, in the pandemic um, more than anything else. He was going to run on how strong the economy was. He's had to shut off the economy he was reluctant to do it for obvious reasons. Um, and he will be marked on how he manages this crisis. Um, and that might affect enthusiasm for Biden as well. But I think, you know, Biden is basically a non-entity at this point. He can't campaign. Um, he's doing YouTube videos, um, whereas Trump has is on, the, on TV every day. Trump's already done a lot of fundraising. You know, he's, the, the incumbency bias... Um, that you have in US politics in terms of um, uh, profile and fundraising is probably going to be double in this in this election, notwithstanding the fact that Biden is a well-known figure. Um, so I'd say Trump is probably in a very strong position unless um, the pandemic gets out of control again. Uh, so I would say that the Democrats have, are almost in a saving the furniture kind of mode and saving the furniture for them means keeping people in their tent who might not be enthusiastic and not portraying 
to the broader public the internal divisions that rack the party. I'm not sure about that. So I, if I was a Democrat, I think I'd be much more, I don't think optimistic is the right word, but I'd be more hopeful for two main reasons. One, um, uh, the economic fundamentals will not look good. Um, uh, there's no reason to believe that there's going to be a, a what economists are now calling a V-shaped return to the economy, um, regardless of whether they, um, uh, even if they cured, the, even if we had a vaccine tomorrow and it was everywhere, then I think there's going to be a long run before um, uh, people feel good about the economy again. So that's that's first. And, and what we know about incumbency elections is that it's very highly dependent on um, those sort of economic fundamentals. And that and, and and Trump knew that because that's that was what he was, as you say, going to run on um, absent the pandemic. The second one is um, not at all uh, it, it, uh, attributable to really anything Donald Trump does, but there's a very strong finding in social science that people just tend to vote against an incumbent if they don't like something that's happening, say that there's an earthquake or um, there's some other natural disaster, regardless of how well the government performs. In fact, regardless of how well they they um, uh, polls suggest people believe the government performed, and it well might be the fact that given that there's a pandemic, given that it's been one of the most, no doubt, stressful um, years for so many voters in living memory, um, people are very likely to, or there's a large percentage of the population that's just going to vote against an incumbent because they're not happy with the status quo, regardless of whether it's the incumbent. That's, that's why Trump, that's why Trump keeps referring to himself as a wartime president. Yes. Yes. Um, it's, because it's never your fault if it's a war. <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, and we know, I mean, even, even George yeah. W. Bush was reelected in the middle of a war that he started. <laughs> Yeah, and this is and this is the yeah, interesting he, challenge. There's the it's basically are you going to vote against the incumbent because you're unhappy with the state of the world, or are you going to have a sort of rally around the flag? I don't think the polls are um, quite good enough for us to know which one is prevailing even yet. Yeah, and I think um, needless to say, the vice presidential uh, nominee to accompany Joe Biden will be even more important than ever. Uh, yes, let's hope they're young and healthy. Yes, that's right. You definitely need a, a backstop. Um, uh, I wonder if you could nominate Barack Obama. Uh, <laughs> that, that would probably get him over the line, yeah. uh, just get get around that minor issue of a constitutional amendment. Um, but, uh, no, certainly a long way to go. Um, books and culture. So, books and culture. Um, so I was watching, um, because I'm incredibly connected to the zeitgeist as, as uh, listeners well know, I watched, um, over the last week or so Tiger King, Tiger King being the new Netflix documentary series. Um, the full title of the show is Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem and Madness. It's about, um, a group of, uh, big cat collectors and, um, big cat sanctuary managers, um, mostly based around um, a bizarre character called Joe Exotic, who ran a private zoo um, in the United States with a lot of um, uh, tigers and um, some lions and lots of monkeys and so forth um, in a not especially ethical manner, didn't um, uh, care for them as well as you might expect from a um, 
a, a more responsible zoo and his feuds and friendships with different people in the tiger community in the United States, in the private tiger community, including a woman named uh, Carol Baskin, who ran a sanctuary for tigers as well. Now, this show has been um, uh, very popular during the crisis, um, uh, during the uh, COVID-19 crisis. Uh, Joe Exotic is now in prison for an attempted um, hit for hire on Carol Baskin, his um, his enemy and opponent <laughs> in the That's Tiger community. Um, uh, Donald Trump was asked in one of these interminable press conferences that the president is holding at the moment about whether he was going to pardon Joe Exotic. Um, uh, and, and Trump obviously had not seen <laughs> Tiger King and had very little idea about what was going on when he was asked. But um, uh, as a show, it's an adequate watch. It's really just a sort of Jerry Springer-esque, here are some really weird people with some really weird hobbies who absolutely loathe each other. Would you like to watch this for eight or nine hours? Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, um, uh, but it certainly, well, it certainly fills in the hours while we're all on lockdown lockdown and we're all on quarantine. Didn't grab me. Didn't grab you. Why didn't he grab you, Andrew? Let's no, let's well, that for that it. for that point that that you just said, which is that it felt like gawking at at weirdos. Um, yeah, it, it's I not. Felt, it, I felt it, like a little like I was. I, I watched the first episode and I felt a little bit like I was, you know, uh, as some sort of tourist, um, just gawking in the these lives that. I don't know. It just didn't. It 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 made me feel somewhat uncomfortable that 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 these people were the butt, perhaps, of a joke. Um, that they weren't, and they weren't aware that that was the case. Or I, I don't think there was that's something quite the case in this, because often, I mean, uh, smart journalists will talk about this. So uh, the journalism is inherently unethical in some ways. Not journalism of um, what governments do, but the journalism that insists on um, someone who's lost a family member in a tragic accident, you should knock on their door and ask them about whether they feel sad or not. Um, but um, so, so there's a lot of just basically ethically questionable practices in just observing people's private lives. I don't think that criticism really holds here because these are not people who are trying to hide from the spotlight. These are people who um, certainly some of them are really actively seeking the spotlight yeah, out. Joe, Joe Exotic. I mean, he, he had he, his own web show. Yeah. web show. He ran for, he ran yeah. for president in 2016. Then he ran for governor of his state um, as a libertarian. He doesn't, uh, as far as we can tell, doesn't know what that means, but it just seemed like the, uh, the no, more no, enjoyable so one. Who does? No, no, out of who those does? two theories, I, I prefer Andrews. I, I will make a ruling. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, Fair enough. Yeah, yep. the, yeah Chris. Y- you're got, the host, uh, Scott. You get to, I guess. That's yeah, the... uh, attentive listeners can refer to uh, Janet Malcolm's book, uh, The Journalist and the Murderer, for Chris's theory about it just being inherent to journalism. No, I think Andrew's right. There is uh, this gawking. The only licensed gawking that's still allowed in the world is to gawk at Americans. Uh, we're not allowed to gawk at indigenous tribes in the Amazon anymore. Um, we can't laugh at, you know, uh, Eastern European peasants. Uh, there's no, there's no ethnic group you're allowed to make uh, fun of anymore. Um, other than, uh, deplorables, uh, other than Americans, my, my kids 
uh, like many teenagers, consume way, way too much stuff from YouTube and, and streaming services. And it's fascinating listening to their idea of America. Um, it's like, does everyone carry submachine guns? Are they all barely literate? You know, it, it's it's this idea of America that Americans themselves love love to um, uh, to promote because you, you you can't put shit on anybody else. So it's uh, no, I'm 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 sh- you're, without you're having put it seen, into a red state blue state thing, are you? Yeah, well, without having seen an episode, um, I'm still going to do a mass right. generalization and say that Andrew is absolutely right. That is exactly what this is about. It's your, a, your opinion it's, it's is, complete is, setup. is very valuable to to us. Uh, yeah, I'd mu- I much prefer someone like Louis Thoreau who who, who tries, these... who, who does really try hard. To... Yeah, he does. He respects the people that he's interviewing, even when they're absolute psychotic nutcases. <laughs> it's, a, it's a rare skill. <laughs> um, Andrew, uh, having been declared the victor, what have you been watching or listening to? Uh, this is a different one for me. I think this is probably the first time I've ever spoken about music on on this show because one, I don't really know anything about music, and and two, um, sort of plays a smaller role in my cultural consumption. But I was very excited uh, a few days ago for the first album, first new album by The Strokes in seven years, uh, and so I have been listening to this uh, basically on a loop since it came out on the tenth. And I'm happy to report that it, as the kids these days might say, slaps. Uh, It it absolutely bangs. Yeah, it is. uh, It is actually a very, a very good album. Um, They've put some effort into this comeback push, um, and it's got that. It's kind of got the the old Strokes sound, but um, like an updated version of it, um, and certainly smacks of a lot more effort than their more most recent album, which was um, seven years ago in 2013. So, which is, so to um, clarify to, to listeners who may not be familiar, it's sort of a garage band throwback sound to sort, well, of, so this, sort of punk so of the, the strokes, 60s. If yeah, you know. I guess I should I'll give a, an intro because, um, and this dates me, um, but of course, Chris, you're of a similar vintage. So for people who came, uh, came who are the older millenni- millennials, the people who... Um, became adults right at the turn of the millennium. The Strokes are basically um, the gold standard for cool. Um, <laughs> the Strokes the Strokes hit hit it big in 2001, um, just after just after September 11, with an album called Is This It, um, which was a real um, it was a real watershed in that that um, garage rock revival. Um, moment that happened around that time so you had bands like the white stripes as well um but the strokes were the the coolest one the one that carried themselves with the most um disdain for everyone else um and had this casually um sort of really tight songwriting um and 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 hit it big and and over the time um they kind of fizzled out um mostly because it seems like the band members who all met each other at extremely expensive private schools in New York and Switzerland <laughs> kind of grew to hate each other. Um, uh, so it, in, in a way, it's kind of miraculous that they were even able to get in the studio together to produce this album. Um, and then another miracle is that it, that it's good, although I am a, uh, a, a diehard um, of Julian Casablancas, who is the, the front man for the Strokes, and I'll defend... Um, at least 
half of the the more recent strokes output and his uh, other side projects as well uh, as being worth listening to. But yes, very happy that this album um, has come along at a moment when I'm stuck at my desk and it's actually good. (laughs) Where would we be without Spotify? Spotify and Netflix are going to get us. Google Play Music is actually my preferred, but yeah. Oh, there you go. So there you go. No, no, very, very nice. No, no, Andrew busted out. Uh, uh, Album reviews are welcome. Uh, I think Dan Wilde's probably uh, the one who's taken that the the furthest on on this podcast. But um, uh, we might have a bit of a when we do our our year in review episode, Chris. Perhaps we can uh, pull up a a, a playlist. A a looking forward uh, playlist. People might have seen, um, I'll just add this because this is a politics podcast, that people might have seen that the Strokes campaigned for Bernie, in fact, mm. um, and launched their launched their album at a Bernie event. Mercifully, the, um, the album is not actually all that political. It seems mostly to be about um, how much um, Julian Casablancas doesn't like either his, his bandmates or, um, <laughs> or, his, or his wife, perhaps, all that much. Um, I think he broke up with her while they were recording it. So, um, mercifully, it's not all that political. Um, yeah, it was a little bit disappointing to see them campaigning for the Strokes, but of course, uh, campaigning for Bernie. But of course, um, that's kind of that kind of political. Well, that, well they got what they deserved, in. didn't they? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of baked baked in with um, the consumption of American entertainment products. Is that there's going to be some kind of left-wing detritus for you to sift through. Yeah, we just take that as a given. Uh, I want to go to a different country for my culture pick. Um, two different countries, in fact. I've been watching uh, a Netflix uh, police murder drama. It's a Japanese-English co-production uh, called uh, Giri Haji, uh, translators Duty Shame, and it's about a uh, Japanese detective uh, in the Tokyo police force who is sent to London uh, unofficially, to be as unobtrusively as possible, bring back his brother, who is a gangster in the Yakuza, uh, to solve various problems for the the Yakuza, the the Japanese uh, uh, mafia, and indeed for the police, um, for those who believe that any good crime drama should start with a body in the opening scene this ticks that box if you believe that there should be at least 10 bodies in the second scene then it ticks that box also it it definitely gets off to a um a rollicking start it um uh a lot of a lot of japanese and a lot of english attentive viewers will notice hokusai's view of mount fuji in the background very fond of the uh of the japanese aesthetic uh, there's plenty of that in here. Uh, interestingly enough, the uh, the the lead actor uh, Takahiro Hira, uh, who speaks his English in a thick Japanese accent, uh, went through Brown University and is in, is in fact fluent in English and has to put on his Japanese accent. Oh dear. So, so go figure. Um, there is nothing if not um, a nod to various archetypes. Uh, they have a um, uh, a lot of the action set in England in so- in the Soho district, uh, and of course there is a, um, uh, a almost Cockney sort of gangster 
played by uh, Charlie Creed Miles, who's you know he was on Peaky Blinders playing a, a version of that character in the in the 1920s or 30s or whenever Peaky Blinders was. And he really does speak like this. And apparently that's how he speaks in real life too. And, you know, a lovely motor you got there, Governor. And so it's got it's got everything you want uh, in terms of um, stock characters. And I think that's the first time we've seen or uh, heard someone do an accent on this show. That's <laughs> true, actually. That's true. And, and maybe the last, depending on the Apart from maybe Gideon. Gideon, 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 on, Gideon, does, funny, Gideon does funny voices. <laughs> yes. That, uh, <laughs> That could be potentially career-ending, I guess, in the wrong context. <laughs> get, him, get him on to do that. That's right. That's right. Um, but it's it's all here, and um, uh, the the it moves at a at a cracking pace. It's an eight-episode series, and um, and they do light it up with all kinds of characters. The uh, the English or uh, well, the Scottish policewoman who's you know somewhat damaged um the you know, hard-bitten uh, chief of detectives in uh in Tokyo that has to make many compromises with the yakuza everyone seems to be sleeping with everyone else there's all sorts of subplots somehow the the japanese guy's daughter finishes up there as well because she's been expelled from school um and there's lots of japanese tropes about um uh, on the theme of duty and honour and family, and it is an extended family that lives in Tokyo. Uh, interesting, even as an aside, I, I looked up Giri, which supposedly translates as, as duty, but um, the Google Translate actually throws up in-laws uh, as a translation. The two concepts are bound. So the idea that this guy has to go and get his brother, who's a gangster, and somehow atone for the family's shame is very much bound up with it i suspect the japanese would would watch this with a very different eye uh to the to the english audiences which is the other half of the co-production um but anyway it's all it's all filler it's all pandemic uh i don't what i generally don't watch a lot of crime dramas but hell in this kind of lockdown you got to do something which gets you away from um talking about viruses and um and I certainly recommend this one, even though if the even if the plot is ludicrous, it's um it's very well acted, very well put together, and there's there's no shortage of things happening. It's called uh, Giri Haji, and we'll put up the links in the in the show notes. In the absence of any superfluous commentary from my uh, fellow <laughs> panelists, uh, I will bring no, the you show to a close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you'll have to you'll have to have a watch of that one. Um, you have been looking to Looking Forward, which is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, if you'd like to support the Institute of Public Affairs and this program, please do go to ipa.org.au. You can join, donate, and look at lots of wonderful videos and research papers, uh, including a recent one by Gideon Rosner setting out our views on the pandemic. Um, I'd like a big thank you to... Josh in the studio, or which otherwise known as his lounge room, uh, who's going to put all this together. Also to Mia for the show notes. A uh, big thank you to my fellow panellists, Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. And Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Great to have you back again, Andrew. Uh, we'll be back with more next week.